She may have been propelled to superstardom after being in millions of homes every week in the Supernatural TV series Charmed, but Rose McGowan's breakout role was in the 1996 classic Wes Craven horror movie Scream, a film that reinvented the genre and saw the star meet an untimely end thanks to an encounter with a garage door. I'm super grateful and excited she's here to talk about it along with her life after that thing she did. So please welcome activist, author, musician, dog lover and former actress, although that may change soon, watch this space, Rose McGowan. Rose, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Appreciate it. We've had some technical difficulties getting started here, so I really appreciate your patience, but we got there eventually. We got there. I just wanted to start off by saying that I discovered you and my dad have something in common, which is that you both don't know when your actual birthday is because you didn't originally have birth certificates. I recently found a letter that has my, someone wrote my birth time and day so I can actually get a proper horoscope. It's not an actual birth certificate, but it is in fact someone just verifying the, the date and time. So if I trust that letter that my father wrote a long time ago, then I can maybe know when I was born. So now you know. What what was the disparity between the date on the letter and your actual, the day you've been celebrating? Well, I've always been told of September 5th, but there was no knowledge or record of what time. Mm. So it was more about getting horoscope charts and all of that. And people are like, what's your rising sign? And no clue. Not that even now that I know the time, I know that information at all because I don't. At least you were told it was a day rather than just kind of like pick a random day. Like with my dad, he was born in Cyprus and he didn't have a birth certificate at the time. And basically when he it was time for him to start school, they just made up a date so that he could get into a specific school year. Don't know if that was actually his birthday or not. We celebrated on the 1st of October because that was good enough to get him into school. Well, I, I had always kind of not really trusted the day that they told me until I found the letter. So I just thought it was could have been just as likely that it was arbitrary, but I think the letter stands. Have you ever pretended it was your birthday when it wasn't just to get a freebie? Uh, I called into a radio show when I was little and they sent balloons to my house. And my mother did not understand why balloons were coming to my house in the middle of the year, not anywhere by September. And I just called this radio show they say if you call in now and it's your birthday so I called in and I realized wait it's not my birthday but I just wanted to call in the radio show and see if I could get on the radio I did achievement unlocked it was worth it for the free balloons yeah exactly except for they all said happy birthday and it wasn't my birthday well you know be like the queen she had two birthdays right exactly always be like the queen (laughs) okay time is of the essence so let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone So after your first movie role in Encino Man, or California Man, as it was known here in the UK, you starred in a few more movies, including Doom Generation and Biodome, before your breakout role in the film we're going to talk about today, Scream, where you of course played Tatum Riley, Sydney's best friend. And horror films had been going through the doldrums a bit at the time. They were mostly lower budget or sequels in franchises. And this film revitalised the horror genre in a really smart way. So as someone who didn't like watching horror films, what were your thoughts when you first read the script? I thought it was brilliant. And I also just thought it was a job, you know, more than anything, a cool job that I could hope to get. So it wasn't with an idea or any knowledge or any vast knowledge of horror films that had preceded it. I didn't 
understand there's a joke in there. What is this? Some Wes Carpenter flick. I didn't understand even when I was saying the line on set that that was a play on John Carpenter and Wes Craven. <laughs> I understood the West part. I just didn't know who John Carpenter was. So I was pretty uneducated as far as horror films went. But I just thought it was a really a good yarn, as they say, a good story. And the film really changed the game and its influence can still be seen today in in the genre with very self-aware characters, clever dialogue, which is no surprise, I guess, coming from the creator of Dawson's Creek, Kevin Williamson. Um, Also killing off a big star in the first five minutes, not least having strong female characters that didn't take any crap and put up a good fight. Did you get a sense that this was something special while you were making it and that the legacy it would create would go on for so long? Well, I did get the sense that there was something special while we were making it, but I didn't have any concept of legacy at that point. No, but there was definitely kind of stardust magic on set and that you could feel, but you never know if that's just isolated to the set experience or if that will translate on screen. I didn't really think too much about the future, to be honest with you. So I was very in the moment with it. You dyed your hair blonde to secure the role, didn't you? I did. I was, I had the brainstorm by looking at the blonde producer and I was in there for another screen test and I realized they would never hire me because they'd cast Nev Campbell and she had dark hair and I knew the rules of show business. And so I made up that I was on my way to get my hair made blonde at a salon and I just watched her eyes pop open with this idea. So that worked. And you also styled yourself, is that right? Wardrobe wise, you went to the mall like the night before filming started and bought all your clothes for the film. I bought a lot of the clothes for the film. The red and white striped pants and the white boots and the belt that I wear in the movie are mine. They were my personal items, actually. Um, the stylist, bless her heart, she wanted to kind of dress me kind of like Nev Campbell was dressed. And I just knew that wasn't Tatum. And I knew I had a choice. I could either make the stylist dislike me or not have the character score as hard as she scored. And I will always put the character first. It's okay if one more person in the world dislikes me. (laughs) I didn't want to hurt her feelings, but I also, I just thought there's no way I'm going out in a sweatshirt and white stacked Ked shoes. It's not going to happen. She said they're very now about this certain pair of shoes. And I was, I guess, a little bitchy. I said they're very never (laughs) and went shopping for myself. (laughs) But she was kind enough to, they were kind enough to approve that. So you know, at least they listened to me when I took my stand. I spoke with AJ Langer on the podcast a few years ago, who was in Wes Craven's People Under the Stairs. And she described him as very zen and calm with thoughtful direction, but also oddly wonderful and the sweetest man with the weirdest mind. What was your experience of working with Wes? Well, I would second everything she said. He, you know, he was a professor early in his career, not as a director, but he was a professor in Ohio. And he was very professorial. He was very calm, very zen, that is correct. And everything was run very calmly on set, which was a change for me. I hadn't experienced that before. And it was delightful. It kind of spoiled me for all others. And he was just a peach. He was just a real gem of a human. And I really had a deep affection for him. But you hadn't actually watched a Wes Craven film before you joined the film, had you? No. And to be fair, I think I've only seen Scream still because I don't watch horror movies because they give me nightmares. (laughs) Jump scares, things like that freak me out. And I already have enough nervous problems. So I don't need that. Let's talk about your iconic death scene 
where you met an unfortunate end with a garage door because you did all your own stunts, didn't you? So could you um, break it down and talk me through the making of that sequence? I'm sure there's some stunt part that I didn't do, but I don't remember what it would be. The stunt girl was quite a bit bigger than I was. Um, Her legs were bigger. And I just realized that that was going to look there's no way that people would believe that this was me. So I went up and down in that garage door. I fit through the doggy door. So they had to nail my shirt into one side so I wouldn't pop out. And it was very cold in there. And I didn't know that. I mean, I knew it was cold, but I didn't know it was registering as a cold uh, thing on my chest, so to speak. So that became kind of an iconic part of it. Smuggling peanuts, as we would say in the UK. (laughs) Yeah, they say raisins in the US, but essentially the same thing. (laughs) What is smuggling raisins? And it was very cold. And it was just a lot of action. I love action. I love doing stunts. And I always love doing the physical and kind of proving that you're not just this soft actress. What was the, uh, was it a cast made of your head for your dead dummy? And then that was the thing that got crushed in the door. Yes, exactly. And they did the makeup on the my death face right behind me while I was getting my makeup done in the makeup trailer. And it was just they had done such a good job on the cast and the, the fear in the eyes was really creepy. And uh, there's a lot of unique experiences you have when you film movies that you can't really explain to other people. And that having your dead face being made up behind you as you're being made up is definitely one of them. <laughs> Is it true they had to reduce the length of time spent on the camera in the final edit of your crushed head just so they could get the R rating? Uh, I don't know, but that sounds about right. Probably. Can't linger too long on a crushed head, you know. <laughs> Mustn't do that. And I love, ironically, for being killed off in a horror film, you can't actually scream. Like, physically, you can't do it. I've never been able to scream. And I told Wes that on set, and he... <laughs> He just looked quite astounded and didn't understand, you know, I'm sure he worked with a lot of actresses that could scream very well. And I said, no, I can yell, but I can't scream. And I ad-libbed the word mom right at the last second. The lovely David Arquette, of course, played your brother, Dewey. Tell me more about you and him crashing prom parties while filming. Yes, we had a night off and we were bored. And so we were you know, effectively just going around this little town trying to figure out what to do. And so we got in our rent-a-car, his rent-a-car, and started chasing prom limos and then going into the parties and dancing and being dorks and just had a laugh, you know, that was, we had so much fun making that movie, honestly, but crashing people's prom parties, which was funny because I'd never been to a prom or a prom party. Later, I would do a movie called Jawbreaker where I had a prom scene that goes awry. So that I guess in Scream, those were my prom parties. And in Jawbreaker, that was my only prom. But as you mentioned, the the class did do a lot of socialising, making the film. Mm -hmm. A lot of dinners, a lot of wine was drunk. What's your fondest memory? I love those cast dinners with a lot of wine and with Wes and everybody. And I still have my bottle of wine that says Scary Movie on it because that was the original title. And each one of us went away with a bottle of wine. And I imagine... A lot of the people drank their wine, but I kept mine. Where does that live now? It's in storage somewhere in Los Angeles. Okay, it's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. 
Hello, Genevieve here. Just wanted to quickly stop and say if you're a regular listener, thank you for hitting that play button again. And if this is your first time, welcome. You have four whole seasons of nostalgia to catch up on. So if you haven't already, please do follow and subscribe. It's totally free. And if you'd like to support the show, stick around at the end to find out how. Now, back to the latter zone. So in talking about life after that thing you did, I find it interesting that you just kind of hinted on there that you ended up experiencing many life milestones on screen rather than in your actual life. So like in Jawbreaker, you said you went to prom, being voted prom queen, getting married. I think you were fake married three times before you actually got married in real life. Is that hard to reconcile in your brain? It was hard to reconcile in my brain, especially the marriage thing. It seemed when I did it for real, I started having this kind of separation of self and thinking that all my friends were extras. And it just kind of gives you this weird, like surrealistic tinge on a lot of things that you're supposed to feel for the first time, but having already done them and gone through the emotions of it, you realize like how on target the fake emotions were, if you will, Mm. because the real ones then also become fake or felt like it to me. So then what happens when you're on like wedding number two or wedding number three on screen? <laughs> it just not, not feel special anymore. It's like, oh, another day in the office. Well, you get a different dress and a different groom and a different set of extras pretending they're all your loved ones and friends that care deeply. It's funny. <laughs> and you get to compare like, oh, this wedding's better than the last one or oh, the food at this wedding's terrible. Right. Well, I guess the nice part is you don't have to pay for any of it. Exactly. Reading your book, Brave, I was reminded of a quote that Adele said once where she said, the bigger your career gets and the fame that comes with it, the smaller your life becomes in terms of your friend circle and being able to enjoy the freedoms you had previously. At what point in your life and career did you feel that change start for you? Probably when I was on Charmed the most. Um, One, the hours that we were working precluded a lot of socializing period. And then also just that level of fame TV or in people's bedrooms. And it was really crazy at the time, you know, and being chased down the street, having your cars chased, just everything you do being kind of paid attention to and, and the onslaught of people, you know, that changes through the years. Uh, but there's that moment where, yeah, your life gets really, really small. And I remember thinking I was the loneliest person on earth at one point, And that would have been the point where I was most technically famous. Speaking of Charmed, um, a year after you made Scream, something truly awful happened to you. And I don't want to dwell on it because you shouldn't be defined by it, but it did inextricably affect your life. And that in turn led you to get blacklisted from Hollywood. And so you moved into TV in 2001 and starred in Charmed for five seasons until it ended. And I remember at the time you didn't really see film actors switch to TV. There was almost a sort of stigma to it. But the year you joined Charmed, it was you and Kiefer Sutherland on 24 that kind of kick-started the trend, which of course is ubiquitous now. How difficult was that transition for you? Well, because my reason for transitioning was not necessarily of my own volition. There's a lot of psychological hardships, were a lot of psychological hardships going on at the time. But I am really proud of my work on Charmed and the effect it's had on people and throughout the generations that people really love that show. And it's become like, it's like a second family to a whole lot of people. Mm. And that's amazing. Personally, it was difficult, but you know, 
you carry on, you pull up your bootstraps, you march on. Five years is a long time to play one role. And uh, and in your book, you described working in television as a prison for your mind, doing the same thing every day. And you said it was a difficult time for you. What kept you going, apart from the five-year contract? <laughs> well, it was the five-year contract, really. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that kept me going. There's no, you, you don't want to be sued, but it was really just tenacity. And, and also, you know, it was a special role, but I did feel because I didn't have time to read or exercise my brain that my brain was turning to mush a little bit. But I think that's a challenge of anybody in any kind of long job that takes up a lot of their day, I imagine. Mm. And so next month you are coming over here to the UK for the Wales Comic Con mm-hmm. and it's going to be a full-on charmed reunion, isn't it? Because Shannon Doherty is also going to be there as well as Holly Marie Combs and Brian Krause. Oh, you just kind of mentioned it, the love for the show that they're still there, but does the fandom and that love like still surprise you 20 years on? It surprises me in the best way. You know, it's really something that I don't, think I certainly could have predicted, just like you couldn't predict the love for Scream, you know, but I love that it's there and I love how much we've affected people's lives and to get to hear that close up and personal is really special. And I love Shannon. I've, I've, we've done a couple conventions together so far. It's kind of like the Charmed Reunion Tour because we've hit, you know, an anniversary milestone. So we're taking advantage of that to come out and meet fans. And I've been having a fantastic time with her. I really adore her. I wanted to talk a little bit about hair because it seems like you were almost kept prisoner by your hair through your life. We mentioned you dyed it for Scream to get the role, but on Charmed, you weren't allowed to cut it or dye it. When you went to premieres or did publicity, it was made really big and bouffant in a way that wasn't really you. And then when you did cut it short, I guess about six, seven years ago, it was like it set you free. It was. You know, the thing is on the show, that was very much a character the hair was, it's part of your character, you know, it did go red at one point, I made it red, and they freaked out, and they were like, what are we going to say, and I'd say, you just say that a spell blew up in my face, or a potion blew up in my face, and it turned red, and I liked it, and I kept it, and those were the first lines of the next season to explain it, and it was never addressed again, (laughs) and we carry on, there's ways to handle this, you know, but I, Hollywood and hair has long been very intertwined, and it just, for me, I feel better with short hair. I know a lot of people like it longer, but I just like it short. Didn't you used to have a big collection of wigs? I did. I had a very big collection of wigs. And I had a closet that was just for them. And they all had the perfect face, like headstands, the wig stands that would hold them. And they were the vintage kind with like really cool makeup, blue eyeshadow and pink lips. And yeah, so I'd have a party and around 1 a.m. the wigs would come out and everyone would start putting on the wigs. It was great. Did you have names for the wigs too? I know people name their wigs. I didn't go that far. I, I didn't go like, what's her face in Schitt's Creek? She has names for her wigs. No, I wasn't. There wasn't Sally and Mary. It was just pink, fuchsia, blue. You've also released an album, mm-hmm. Planet Nine, and forayed into directing. And a couple of years ago, you said you didn't want to act anymore as it wasn't really your thing now. But but have you changed your mind? Because I think I saw you're working on an animated film, both voicing and directing it. I'm not working on an animated film. I don't know where that's from. That's what IMDb says. The internet is lying. It's I, and, and I thought it might very well be true because it's called something like Pomeranian. And I was like, it's dogs, so it must be. Oh, yeah, that is something that I'm working on. No, that is something I'm working on. It's just not current. But that is something I'm working on. And it is something that I actually 
um, commissioned, I wrote a 30 page treatment and then commissioned the screenplay of Pomerania. That is true. Sorry. I thought it was something else. Uh, cause uh, there's a lot of credits on IMDb that aren't mine and I wish whoever did it well, but it was not mine, but I kind of started recently missing performing. I've kind of become a bit nostalgic for it and I might be changing my mind on that. Yes. So Pomerania is an animated film. It is. Is it about dogs? It is about dogs. It's about mutts versus purebreds in the kingdom of Pomerania who will go to any length to see their breed rule all. And presumably you voice one of the dogs. Of course. <laughs> well, I look forward to that when it comes out. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'd like to talk a little bit about your dog, Perlita. Pearl. Because I'm a crazy cat lady, but she is very, very cute. She could turn me. Um, can you tell me a bit about how she came into your life and what she's done for you? Um, because she's an emotional support animal, isn't she? She is. She's, I went to a sleep disorders clinic and I was having terrible nightmares, really bad nightmares. And the lady, the doctor prescribed a dog, not medicine. And I was so chuffed by that. I went out and got one and I ordered her from, I found this breeder in Cuba and the dog is called Havanese. It's the national breed of Cuba. And she's a really special little creature. She, I call it kind of call her a cat dog because she's very clean. She cleans herself and she's, she's just got the best personality and I love her so very much. She's life force. She gives happiness. She gives joy. The pictures you sent me of her, she's super cute. Like I normally when I see dogs, it's like nah, cats rule, dogs drool, but Pearl is very cute. Pearl does not drool. She, she's very fluffy. <laughs> I think that's the thing that does it for me. She is and her fur doesn't come off. She doesn't shed and she's very soft. She's incredible. And she's given a lot of people so much happiness. So where, because you've just come back from Paris, did she travel to Paris with you or did she? No, no, she stayed with a friend. I bet it was a happy reunion though, because I know when we go away on holiday. Very happy. How does she feel when you come back? Because when we go on holiday and we come back, Sushi gives us like the worst evil bitch glare for like a good hour and a half when we come home <laughs> i had a dog like that before until the treats come out and then she's like okay fine i forgive you no pearl I, i'll send you a video of her welcoming me at the airport oh that's gonna be super cute <laughs> she's ecstatic um you've accumulated many accolades over your career time person of the year the inspiration award or the gq man of the year awards which one means the most to you that's pretty cool being a Time Magazine Person of the Year because you're up there with some pretty significant people throughout history, I have to say. But at the end of the day, I think it's been just meeting fans and the impact of my work on their lives That's in my book and how that's affected people. That's meant the most to me. That's better than any award. I saw in, uh, I think it was in your book, it was a picture of you in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Could you just tell me a little bit more about you going and what you did over there? In 2010, I went to Afghanistan on a USO trip uh, with James Gandolfini and some other actors that were amazing and had one of the most amazing times of my life and wound up getting to go, you know, do things that other people don't really get to do in a place that other people don't really get to go. And, and that was an incredibly special special trip that I'll always really remember and treasure. That's kind of like one of those supporting the troops type 
things, isn't it? So do you just kind of meet everyone? and Right. But I missed an airplane that I was supposed to be on. I was supposed to be on a C-17 bomber to go over there, and I missed it. And I wound up on Air Force Two, which is Air Force One when the president's on board. When he steps off, it goes to Air Force Two. So I got to fly over with all these military generals and it was really the whole thing, you know, and meeting so many people out there was was really special. And the mountain range was beautiful and the light was incredible. And it was surreal, you know, in many ways, because you're in this beautiful, harsh, rugged place and it's a war. But also just going and doing things that other people can't do has always been very interesting to me. What was Air Force Two like? I took a napkin. It was cool. <laughs> Does it actually say like Air Force One on it? It doesn't say Air Force One, but it says like the, it's like the, you know, the, there's a lot of flags <laughs> and they don't have, and the, and the seats don't fully recline. What? And the <sighs> back half of the plane is for like military intelligence and journalists. So it's not a normal plane. Very few people can say they've done that. That is very cool. It was very, and I took my hairdresser with me and I didn't realize he'd never been out of the U.S. So the first place he ever went out of the U.S. was a war zone. <laughs> I took him, he was my friend. It wasn't just because I needed my hair done. It was just because he was my friend. But I really did not realize that he had never traveled outside of the country. And it was his first time uh, overseas. What a trip for him. Take him to Afghanistan. That's a baptism of fire. It was amazing. <laughs> I was a lucky girl. So what I find strange is that you're a funny person, like sense of humor, funny person. Um, but people don't get to see that side of you, really, as you've been portrayed in the media over the past few years as being either kind of angry all the time or ranty about politics or, or passionately speaking about encouraging a cultural reset. What makes you laugh? My dog, um, she makes me laugh. She's better than TV. Uh, I would say absurdity. My nieces make me laugh. They're very funny. I think just an irreverent take on life. I have kind of a dry sense of humor and I find a lot of things that you're not supposed to laugh at quite funny. Um, but I think laughing is the best. I hope I get a nice hard laugh soon. Random question for you. Do you still not have a sense of smell? Or has it come back now? Um, it, it Close up, I can smell a little bit of things close up, but I can taste perfectly. So if you have to lose a sense, I guess that's the one to lose. Weird. It makes New York bearable in the summer. <laughs> My husband lost his sense of smell ages ago. And then during COVID, he lost his uh, taste. So we would get to this point where we'd be eating something and he'd look at me and he'd say, like, do we like this? Is this good? Does this taste good? And I'd be like, yeah, it's fine. And he'd be like, oh, okay. That sucks. I know. And we love food. We like literally live to eat and um, he, he's not recovered yet. But in, in a kind of related question, do you still not eat seafood because you think it looks like a prehistoric bug? Correct. I still think it's terrifying and I think they're the aliens and we need to respect them and leave them as is. <laughs> My husband is with you. He generally eats anything but won't eat something if he thinks it looks cute, like a bunny rabbit or a duck, or if he thinks it looks gross, which is pretty much all seafood. Your husband and I have some things in common. My sister says I have a child's palate, so I kind of think I just didn't graduate to eating the scary stuff. I wish I was more adventurous as an eater. Life would be a lot bigger and more open to me. I know that, but I just can't seem to make myself. But you're like, you were born in Italy. You grew up in Italy. Surely there's like, it's like one of the greatest 
cuisines you can eat. Oh, yeah, I know. But since I got sent away from Italy, I went on strike because all food is subpar comparatively. And on that note, Rose, it's been so lovely talking to you. Thank you so much again for taking the time. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, we'll see you next month in Wales. Have a great day. biggest of thanks again to Rose. She really was a trooper. She just got back from a long haul flight from Paris. It was a bit jet lagged and we had so many technical issues at the start. It took us a good half hour before we were finally able to hear each other after trying various platforms and devices. And she was so patient and willing to try them all. But a lot of people probably would have just given up at that point. But we managed to make something work in the end on her phone. And I'm super grateful to her for sticking it out with me. As we mentioned, Rose is going to be at the Wales Comic Con on the 13th and 14th of May. So if you're a Charmed fan, it's the perfect opportunity to see the cast all together. And even if you're not, you still get the chance to meet Rose, get an autograph, take a photo and all that good stuff. So that's it for season five. I'd like to thank all my guests who've once again generously given me their time and shared their stories with me this series. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to them too. I really am grateful you hit that play button. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from. So thank you so much for choosing this one. I do make and fund this podcast all by myself and I don't have any sponsors or advertising or charge people to listen and I do everything from booking guests to researching, editing, publishing and promotion and it's a lot of work for one person that typically a whole paid team would do on a celebrity interview podcast. So if you've enjoyed just one episode this series it would really mean the world to me if you could please support the show. Just visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate whatever you'd like. Big thanks to everyone who donated this series. I'm hugely grateful. I know times are tough, so even just sharing the podcast with a friend or on social media really helps spread the word. Hit that subscribe or follow button. It's totally free. And do leave a five-star rating or review on your podcast platform of choice because people are more likely to listen if someone else says it's worth it. And do follow the pod on social media. Just search for Celebrity Catch-Up and you'll find me. I'm going to take a much needed holiday and break, but I'll be back with season six in the summer with more brilliant guests talking about their lives after that thing they did. Until next time, thanks for listening. Listener.